0: Jay, do you ever think that Rain Sinclair got kind of a raw deal?
1: So, by that, do you mean her terrible childhood, her upsetting adult life, or her fairly horrific death? She seemed pretty happy post-resurrection, at
0: least. Yes, yes, and yes, but I was thinking specifically of her powers. Dude, she can turn into a wolf. Which, don't get me wrong, is cool and all, but compared to a lot of mutant power sets, it seems kind of... I don't know, low-key. Well, I can see that, but you have to keep in mind that she can't just turn into a wolf, she can turn into- A wolf-human hybrid? Again, just not really that impressive. Multiple wolves? WHAT?! I'm Jay Editon. And I'm Miles Stokes.
1: And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's
0: about time someone did.
1: Welcome to episode 320 of Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera.
0: And we are back. After our winter special, after a week off, we are here once again with a completely normal, standard episode.
1: You say that as if such things exist.
0: Miles. X-Men. That's a really good point, yeah. Okay, a comparatively, RELATIVELY standard normal episode. Things are
1: mostly not on fire, except when it's plot-relevant. I guess a couple things do end up on plot-relevant fire.
0: That's pretty common in superhero comics in general, really. But this time, we are gonna be talking about Excalibur again. We are back in that direction, back across the pond, and we're gonna be talking about a few issues that I think we both really, really liked, actually.
1: Yeah, this is a trio of fairly, I'm going to call them quiet issues, although a lot of stuff does happen. Um, They're essentially pretty low-key character stories, and they're a chance for the team to regroup within its new structure, and for Ellis to more solidly establish the dynamics and tone of this part of the run.
0: Right. Uh, Warren Ellis has been writing for a fair bit of time now, and I think this is the first time we really get into the heads of a lot of these characters. And... Part of me wishes he had sort of started out this way, I think the start of Warren Ellis' run on Excalibur is not the strongest start of a run that I've seen, but I'm glad we're getting this now.
1: Yeah, it feels very fly-by-the-seat-of-pants earlier, and this, this this is the breath of air that it's been desperately needing for a while. I mean, I, I definitely get the point of starting a new writer's run with action stories and with more involved stuff. Um, And I mean, I I think he started in the middle of of larger-scale things and coming out of an event, so there's that. But yeah, I really, really like these three issues that we're going to be looking at today.
0: Indeed. Well, before we dive in, and we should do so pretty quickly, because I know it's only three issues, but God, there's so much to talk about in them. Miles, I feel like if there's anything our listeners should know about us by now, it's that we'll spend twice the time on feelings that we do on fights. Very good point. And yeah, more feelings than fights. Well, feelings and fights all have origins in events in the past, the mist-shrouded past of yellowed back issues. So what happened to get us to this point? All right, so where
1: we are now, things on Muir Isle are kind of at a pause point. They're finally getting back to at least a very relative normal for Excalibur, which is Europe's premier superhero, mostly mutant, team, Um, and, and it's got it's still got a fair number of its founding members, but its lineup has changed a little bit. What's been happening, and, and who's who's in the house?
0: Well, after a fair bit of highly antagonistic flirting, Kitty Pride is dating new-ish character Pete Wisdom, former British intelligence agent and current sleazy curmudgeon. Pete is much older than Kitty, but Kitty's clearly being written as a young adult at this point, so it's merely questionable rather than horrifying, and honestly it's mostly questionable because Pete is a total sleazebag, as we mentioned.
1: Well, and when you say young adult, she's being written as an adult who is young, not as a young adult, like, for the literature thing. She's, 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 I would say, credibly in her early 20s here.
0: That makes sense to me, yeah. I'm not sure what was intended numerically, but what we know is she's a grown-up, and Pete Wisdom is a much older grown-up.
1: Yeah, that's one of those points where continuity is important, but where I'm willing to look at—with with that general qualifier, I'm willing to look at this in a comparative vacuum. Now, significantly before Pete showed up on Mirror Isle, Professor X convinced Kitty to convince Colossus, her ex-boyfriend, who was at that point with Magneto's acolytes in space, to return briefly to Earth under false pretenses. Xavier thought Colossus had some kind of brain damage or issue that was affecting his judgment and had, had influenced his decision to join the acolytes, Basically told Kitty to say, I'm in love with you, I can't live without you, come back to Earth. She felt really shitty about it, he wasn't happy about it, and Colossus ended up going
0: back to space anyway. Sometimes I feel like not all of Professor Xavier's decisions are good ones.
1: You don't say.
0: Captain Britain, meanwhile, seems to have gotten his 90s Britannic persona fully out of his system, thankfully.
1: Oh god, it could not have happened soon enough.
0: So now, he and his elemental partner Megan are mostly just being adorably domestic together. And also blonde. Very blonde.
1: Now, I mentioned that they're living on Muir Isle right now. That's because they're crashing with Dr. Mauro McTaggart, one of Charles Xavier's better-known exes alongside Magneto and so forth. And she is also, at this point... As far as we know, this is going to be retcon decades later, but um, as far as we know, the first human to contract the legacy virus. So far, mostly asymptomatically, but that's sort of a pall cast over everything. Now, Moira hasn't been making much ground in her attempts to, to research and come up with a cure for the legacy virus, but she does have one good thing going for her, and that's that her adoptive daughter, Rain Sinclair, that's Wolfsbane of the New Mutants and later of, of X Factor, has just moved back home.
0: Nightcrawler and his foster sister-slash-girlfriend Daytripper? Yeah, they're fine, too. Also on the team,
1: and somewhat more continuously complicated, is, uh, du- is Douglock, who is actually Warlock, with a lot of the memories and a lot of the- the appearance of Doug Ramsey. We don't know that for sure at this point, we just know that he's Douglock, but he's adapting well, too, and the team's mostly gotten used to him being there as well, including Kitty, who had been pretty antagonistic with him at first.
0: Continuitously, That's a great word. I don't think it's real. It is now. Well, it's time for a trilogy of relatively down-to-earth stories featuring less trauma than usual. I mean, okay, I guess there's a lot of head trauma in the middle of the three. We'll get to that.
1: There's emotional trauma, Miles, the most important kind in X-Men.
0: Good point. And that brings us to Excalibur number 91, Baby, I Love You. Written by Warren Ellis, penciled by David Williams, Mike Wyringo, Jeff Moy, and Mike Miller inked by Mike Miller, Mike Christian, and Philip Moy, colored by Ariane Lenchoek and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. I like this issue a lot. It's one of my very favorite issues, certainly, of this run. And it's definitely not helped by having so many artists. Although, lack of artistic consistency has kind of been a thing in Ellis' Excalibur run.
1: Yeah, that's… One of the more frustrating things about the long-term evolution of this book— and it's, I think, more visible on this book than it might be elsewhere just because the first long, long stretch of this had one very distinctive artist.
0: Agreed, yeah. And there's also the fact that when you're comparing yourself to Alan Davis, you are not going to do well no matter who you are. Yeah, the best you're going to get is equally good at what they do. Exactly. The art is still pretty nice in parts, though— on a literally nicely framed opening page, because they're sitting in a window, which, you know, has a frame, uh, Pete and Kitty are watching the Isle Isle sunset and talking about how, you know what would be nice? A bar would be nice. Pete thinks that everybody hates him, but Kitty's like, no, 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 it'll be fine. We'll all get along, and we kind of have to have a conversation with the team anyway about the whole you and me and you being a sleazebag and me being beloved and us boinking thing.
1: I mean, they do kind of all hate Pete, but it's affectionate hatred, like, he's the guy who 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 they all bond over, you know, giving hell.
0: That's fair, that's a fair point. I feel like every social group needs one of those people, hopefully only gently despised.
1: And where the X-Men have baseball and the New Mutants have, or, or Generation X has basketball, Excalibur, Excalibur has pubs.
0: Indeed they do, and this is indeed the somewhat famous Team Goes to the Pub issue.
1: Well, it's one of several, and the other one Megan turned into a mermaid.
0: I don't think the whole team was there for that one, but boy howdy, that was an issue. I feel like right now, before we dive in, we should talk a bit about bars and pubs and booze in general. And let's throw a mild content warning onto this, I know alcohol can be an issue for a lot of people, totally legit. We are going to be talking a fair bit about it in this issue. Fictional characters get affably drunk. Indeed they do. Or you know, in the case of Brian Braddock, have complicated histories, which to its credit this issue deals with. Well, that's why I specified aff- affably. The only characters who end up intoxicated
1: in here are, are at least completely nonviolent about it.
0: Indeed, I gotta say, we are still in quarantine lockdown, whatever you want to call it. Of course, this being early twenty twenty one, I really miss bars. I really miss going to pubs with friends, especially. One of the last things I did before we all realized that, holy crap, there's a pandemic, was to do a bar crawl with a handful of friends, going to a few of my favorite breweries. It was so nice, and god, this issue makes me nostalgic.
1: Yeah, we found out recently that one of our favorite neighborhood places isn't going to be opening back up, so... Oh, that
0: sucks. But yeah, having an establishment whose job it is to give folks an enjoyable place to drink and relax, that's really nice, and this issue, I think, highlights... Why it can be.
1: Well, it's also worth noting that as much as the cultural niche you're describing is, is one that exists in the States, it's much, much, much more the case in the British Isles um, in terms of pubs as social centers that aren't necessarily specifically about drinking. Or, I mean, that that are, are framed around that but are more all age thing. And it's also, also um, I'm not sure about drinking age in the UK. I know when I was living in Ireland, it was 18, so I assume it's... it's or, and and while the, the that's you know, obviously a different country, um, I remember it having been lower in the UK as well.
0: I think we looked into this in our last Excalibur episode, and uh, things were still kind of ambiguous. I don't know a lot about England. I try.
1: Point being, well, and, and as in the United States, a lot of smaller neighborhood places
0: aren't gonna ID you. There is that. There is that. Especially since one of the people that goes to this pub is a robot. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Pete does indeed ask one person along to this pub outing that Kitty has insisted upon, and of course the person he talks to is the one that has the biggest problem with it, Moira McTaggart. He immediately pisses her off by smoking in the sick bay next to a sedated, one-legged Rory Campbell. Okay, but fuck that guy. Yeah, basically fuck Rory Campbell. I mean, it's sex that he lost a leg, but given that he did it in the least ethical, psychological setting this side of the Stanford Prison Experiment, you know, I can't feel too bad.
1: I'm going to go ahead and say that what he's his, he's been doing is actually less ethical than the Stanford prison experiment.
0: Milgram obedience study? Eh, still iffy. Well, anyway, Moira does smile and change her tune once Pete mentions that what he's approaching her about is a group trip to the bar. And I gotta say, Ellis and whatever-the-hell Penciler does this set of pages do a really good job mixing Moira's uptight, grumpy responsibility face with her more human side. Like, I really love Moira in this run.
1: Yeah, something that's consistent about Moira is that she very much feels the need to be the restraining influence adult in the room. And it's very much something that she does, sort of, by formula, out of obligation.
0: Exactly, yeah, that's only one side of her. Kitty herself, being the much more responsible partner, finds everybody else, starting with Brian and Megan, whose rooms are off-limits in the evenings. But when she knocks, they're just wholesomely reading the Sunday paper together. I love it. I mean, in their defense, I wouldn't want to be interrupted doing that either. Fair point, yeah. But... I do enjoy that Brian and Megan just get to be happy, for kind of a long time, actually. Like, even when Megan gets erased from reality around the House of M period, that's temporary, and these days, the two of them are doing just great.
1: Yeah, something Ellis does that I really, really appreciate is really shift the focus of interpersonal drama and the team away from them. They've been—their then rocky relationship has been really the center of the Excalibur soap opera pretty much from the start. And over the course of the series, they've resolved a lot of those issues. And it's nice that they actually get to stay resolved, and they get to sort of move on and, you know, shift on to, to living their lives. That's something I think that that also happens in general with Megan's character development in this. Like, there are — it's not that she, she goes static or she stops developing, it's that the things that were the big central struggles for the first large chunk of the series are things that she's largely dealt with, and she gets to actually move in new directions now.
0: Exactly. Now, that's not to say that they're entirely without drama. I mean, Brian did recently become a possessed slave of Morgan Le Fay for a while, but, you know, they're doing better than they were. Yeah, there was context. Next up are Wolfsbane and Duglock. Now, if you recall, Duglock is no stranger to pubs. He went to one with Kitty where they had a big fight not too long ago, and he remembers. One drinks fermented poisons and then sits upon unconscious humans. I do love that scene from Excalibur 81 where they're reconciling after their big fight by sitting on the unconscious body of someone who was being a jerk and they knocked out.
1: That's friendship. That's a very Kitty Pride move. Rain, meanwhile, has a very different view of the whole situation. Pubs where bad men drink and women get pregnant. So, you asked when we were talking about this earlier whether it seemed weird that Rain was so scandalized by this, considering that she'd just gotten off X-Factor, which wasn't exactly a dry team, and... I think there are a couple things at play here. One is that Rain's characterization for a lot of X-Factor was very heavily mediated by the genotian mutate stuff. And I could see her springing back pretty hard after that. The other is that she's home for the first time in a long, long time, and I think as anyone who has has moved away and then gone back to where they grew, grew up knows, those old habits and sort of the old thought patterns that go with them die harder than most of us would like.
0: That's a good point, and certainly that level of scandalized prudishness was a pretty central part of Wolfsbane for a long, long time after she was introduced.
1: And we're going to be getting to that actually in much, much more detail in the third issue that we're looking at today, which is very much a Wolfsbane issue. For now, who's left? We've got Kurt and Amanda Sefton, and Kitty wants to know how they like
0: the sound of a night out. So I feel like there are two types of people in this world. One of them is Kurt, who says, And the other is Amanda, who says... Where to? We don't really see their relationship developed much at all. I mean, Amanda Sefton's been around for ages, ever since she was a stewardess who was then revealed to be the secret daughter of Kurt's kind of demon adoptive mom back in Claremont's run. And so I don't really have strong feelings about the relationship, but it is entertaining here and there.
1: Kurt is a character who I think is has has sort of the dual characteristics of simultaneously being very adventurous and very sort of dramatic and also very much a homebody and i i like that i really like that combination i one of one of the things that you see a lot in really a lot of media but in in comics in general are people who sort of have a central set of characteristics rain ends up get, getting written with her single predominant trait being raised fundamentalist for instance Kurt never falls into that space. He is a strikingly strikingly complex and in a lot of ways at least at a first glance apparently contradictory character, and I love that.
0: In a way he reminds me a lot of a character who premiered at the same time as him, that being Storm.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think I think it's that's got to be one of the reasons that they have su- such a close friendship and so much sort of intuitive connection.
0: Exactly. Do they contradict themselves? Then they contradict themselves. Except they're not Legion, because he's a different guy in X-Men. Anyway, they head off, although Moira's worried about leaving Rory, and Kurt's worried about being blue in public. But as it turns out, everybody here at the bar, which Moira half grew up in, I mean, her dad used to own it, is pretty awesome, from the young bartender that Moira knew when the bartender was just a little girl, to the big beardy guy who looks kinda like muscular Santa and owns the place these days.
1: And Rory for his part is heavily enough sedated that he doesn't get it up to any, at least new trouble.
0: Exactly. They just need to make sure that they turned the oven off before they left and he'll be fine.
1: <laughs> just gotta gotta put all of the dangerous stuff on high shelves.
0: Kurt is still pretty worried as he goes up to the bar to order a beer.
1: Yeah, and he, he goes to the bar dreading the barkeep's response, and we get, of course, sort of the teaser moment of her just staring really intently at him. For she tells him that, given how cold tonight is, even his sleek blue fur is not going to keep the chill out, so he might want to consider getting a whiskey along with that beer.
0: And that's sort of what breaks all of the tension. It's great. Even Rain is willing to try a drink that Kitty offers her, which of course is non-alcoholic because Kitty's not a total jerk.
1: Brian likewise isn't isn't drinking tonight, although he's weirdly cagey about it, which is strange, because the entire team knows he stopped drinking. Like there was there was a lot of, of of group conversation about that.
0: Still though, I can see him not wanting to draw attention to that. Especially the dude grew up British, and like you said, drinking culture is a big thing over there. So the fact that he's drinking a non-alcoholic beer that he is sort of covering up so it's not clear that it's a non-alcoholic beer? I can see him doing that.
1: I mean, I could definitely see being embarrassed that you're drinking non-alcoholic beer as opposed to a likely better non-alcoholic beverage.
0: That's a really good point. Every time I've had non-alcoholic beer, which to be fair has only been a couple of times because it was bad, it was bad. This issue continues to really capture the feel of just those slow, quiet evenings with friends relaxing over drinks.
1: Time passes slow and easy, marked only by the clink of glass and smoke drifting lazily up into the rafters. Their muscles and minds all start to unwind as they find the space to relax for the first time in months.
0: <sighs> and after a while, Moira and her increasingly thick due to boos accent ask the question on everybody's minds, so what's up with Kitty and Pete anyway? And there is this great trio of panels as Kitty and Pete look at each other, worried, knock back the rest of their current drinks, and then cuddle up close together, as they say.
1: Well, basically, we, um, we really, really like each other, okay, and...
0: Yeah, really like.
1: And Pete's quit black air, and we, I mean, I, I guess...
0: Quit, yeah. Hate him.
1: Want Pete to stay with Excalibur so we can be together and, like,
0: that. Yeah, and if Fenia, you don't like it...
1: And it's... Fairly chill. There's a pretty delightful shovel talk.
0: Okay, we should explain what a shovel talk is, because I feel like that's a pretty uh, a pretty local to our social group term.
1: It is absolutely not. It is it is a pretty widely used idiom. But for those of you unfamiliar, a shovel talk is when you take your your you know, friend or family member's new partner aside and you inform them that they seem like a nice person and all. But if it turns out otherwise, you own a
0: shovel. I think you scared a lot of our friends' new partners back in the day by giving them that speech. Gently. You gently scared them. And yes, uh, Brian and Kurt do indeed give Pete that speech in the men's room, because, you know, they respect Kitty and she's a grown-up now, but she's Kitty and they would do anything to protect her.
1: I also really enjoy their specific threats. I believe Captain Britain threatens to rip his head off, and Kurt adds that he will then spend several days pointedly mocking it and drawing silly faces on it before dumping it into the ocean.
0: Exactly. They're a good team. They are. And yeah, everybody's having a great time together. When the gents come out of the gents' room, uh, all the women, and I think Douglock also maybe, are doing the can-can on the table.
1: And Moira—so this, this is a detail I love. I, I want to actually— I'm, I'm saying so much nice stuff about Ellis's run here, but um, one of the things that I I really appreciate are his phonetic accents, because he uses them heavily here. But they're pretty accurately phonetic, and they're pretty legible. And they're self-aware enough that Moira's gets heavier and heavier and heavier as she drinks, and it hits a point where she starts getting subtitles.
0: It's genuinely hilarious. Like, I think I literally, ha! out loud when I read that part.
1: Well played. So, luckily for all of them, Captain Britain, being a sensible fellow, has basically outfitted their their um, plane such that it can be a designated driver. It's got an automatic, you know, goes back home, ignores the drunk people riding in it feature now.
0: That would be very handy.
1: I mean, there's public transit, man.
0: It's great, though, because as the evening ends, as they're about to fly back, like, all the couples are outside making out in the moonlight, and Moira is just covering Wolfsbane's eyes, telling her, Dene look, Rainy? It's filthy. And then burping.
1: Well, Moira is—Moira is absolutely smashed at this point.
0: But it's all just so wholesome. As much as you can define a story which features everybody being blissed out of their minds, except for, like, Captain Britain and the robot and the teetotaling wolf girl— being wholesome. And they're all having a pretty good time, too. Yeah, it's just nice. It's just nice to get to see the team being friends and relaxing and having fun. You don't get to see that very often in superhero comics in general, and I think especially since Alan Davis stopped writing, you don't get to see much of that in Excalibur.
1: Yeah, Excalibur was the fun book for a really long time, and it's been the kind of high tension but passed enough between writers that it's inconsistent book in the gap. So it's really nice to see it going back there, to see those easy, friendly dynamics coming back.
0: Not everything is friendly, though, because as the team does finally get robo-DD'd back home, Kitty and Pete are being watched by a very large, very familiar, very metal man.
1: That flows straight into Excalibur 92, titled I Want You, this is written by Warren Ellis, penciled by Casey Jones, inked by Mike Miller, Tom Simmons, Joe Rubenstein, and W. C. Karani, colored by Ariane Lenishek, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. This is- this is just a seamless extension of the story from 91, they're basically- it- it ends exactly where that issue, uh, leaves off, with Pete and Kitty saying goodnight
0: outside headquarters, at which point Colossus immediately jumps Pete Wisdom. And it's freaking brutal. I mean, Pete Wisdom is a mutant, yes, but he can, like, make his fingers hot and shoot lasers out of them. Colossus is, well, Colossus.
1: Well, and I really, really appreciate how heavily this issue emphasizes that, just with the difference between power and, vulner- and vulnerability between these two guys. It's something that comics often really overlook among multiple super powered characters, and it's really spelled out here.
0: Yeah, the narration is great.
1: He has no healing factor. Aside from his heat-casting talent, he has no protective mutant capability. And he has no idea who this Russian demon in steel is. Pete Wisdom knows only that he is breaking like cheap glass under its fists.
0: And eventually Excalibur does come out to investigate all the screams and loud noises, but by that point, Pete's in real bad shape.
1: Yeah, he's he's got pretty severe brain trauma, a lot of internal damage, and he's also managed to almost sever... Peter's spine, which is a detail I'm going to come back to, because I want to discuss that, because it's a major continuity point about how his powers work. Now... Kitty and Nightcrawler try to break up the fight with, with no success. Fortunately, they've got help, and, and a pretty great, again, bit of narration to go with it. Megan and Brian Braddock are the two most physically powerful members of Excalibur. Being hit by one of them resembles having a large chest freezer dropped on your brain. Being hit by both is like being punched in the face by God. And Colossus is here. It turns out, or thinks he's here to re- reconnect with Kitty. He is.
0: He will not stop talking about how he's come back for for her. Katya, finally, I came back for you, my Katya. I haven't slept in days. Have I been gone so long that you could forget about me? Do you know what I've been through to come back to you, my Katya? So, Colossus
1: broke up with Kitty on Uncanny X-Men number 183, which was how many decades ago at this point?
0: Quite a few. Yeah, that was uh, on page because he had met a nice cavewoman who he had fun times with in the Savage Land. Editorially, it was because... Apocryphally, at least, Jim Shooter was uncomfortable with Colossus dating a character who was so very young.
1: Now we know he still has feelings for her to some extent because of the the stuff I mentioned when we were when we were you know recapping what had been happening previously that she was able to to lure him back to Earth. But that has apparently grown into a pretty strong obsession. Um, he's fixated Kitty on or he's fixated on Kitty as the part of his life that's sort of normal and positive that he can come back to when so much of the rest of it has been destroyed.
0: And honestly, I can kind of see that. I mean, he's had everything go wrong in his life. He's had his entire family die in various horrifying ways. When he ran away to space to be with Magneto, that all went very, very poorly, and his ideals were crushed even further. So, is it right that he's put Kitty on this pedestal as this symbol of all that is pure in his life? No. Is it something I buy him doing? Yeah.
1: Yeah, that boy has been in need of a therapist in the worst way for, honestly, kind of his entire career.
0: Pretty much, yeah. I mean, ever since he was forced to kill Proteus, coincidentally enough, here on Mere Isle, way, way, WAY back in the day, early in Claremont's run, he's just been breaking a little bit more and a little bit more. He's been transforming from, as Claremont often said, the farm boy with the soul of an artist to something harder and colder and emptier.
1: To a soldier with the soul of a different and much less stable artist. And roughly half of this issue is, is specifically is, is about that. It's Peter stuck in an inhibitor collar in a cell getting called on a wide range of bullshit by Mora, Kurt, and Kitty, respectively.
0: And we should disambiguate. When we say Peter or Piotr, that's Colossus. Pete wisdom will always be Pete
1: And, you know, normally with stuff like this, we'll we'll usually refer to one by by a codename and one by by their their given name. In this case, I feel like neither of them's really in superhero identities, and I mean Pete doesn't have a codename, period. So I think I think it makes sense to just just have the the name forms that they use be the the point of disambiguation. So I want to go back to those conversations because those are the bulk of this issue and and the bulk of what makes this issue interesting. We see bits and snippets of action around them as as Mara's working feverishly to try to keep Pete alive. Um,
0: well, and to try to keep Colossus alive. I mean, we have some interesting stuff with Colossus's anatomy going on here.
1: Right, that's a really good point. Let's, let's actually talk about that now, because this is a major shift from anything we've seen as far as how his body works in its steel form. During the fight, towards the end of the fight, Pete effectively nearly severs Colossus' spine by stabbing him in the back, him in the back with his, his hot knives, his heat-generating power. And Colossus feels that, like his legs go numb, he collapses. Normally, we don't see anatomically specific injuries impacting Colossus when he's in steel form. That's been something that's been a specific continuity point before, where he's been injured severely in steel form, and he's been pretty much okay, or he's been stable, but if he had reverted to human form it would have killed him. We also haven't really seen much of his internal anatomy and how much of it really continues to exist or translates. So this is a great opportunity to kind of peel back the shell and see how things tick. As it were, what we learn here is that at least by this point, Colossus does actually have internal anatomy when he's steel. Um, in fact, what we see implies that it remains pretty much intact, just you know, also made of steel. Um, as we see, he's got he's got a spine, he's got a spinal cord, and. Moira, fortunately because all of this is made of steel has machines that can do the very delicate work of just straight up rebuilding it such that when he switches back to human form he can he's put back together enough that he can pretty much heal naturally without major issue so i was thinking about this relative to the the other representations we've seen and i don't actually think that it's it's a shift because those previous instances I'd, I'd been discussing were all fairly comparatively superficial injuries. They weren't things that would have left organs or bones exposed. So we really wouldn't necessarily have seen that.
0: And even when you have really big ones, I'm thinking way back in the day when Colossus is heated up and frozen and frozen in quick succession when he's fighting the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Like, at that point, the main concern was if he went back to his human form, that brittleness would translate and be a problem but yeah this level of like you said anatomical specificity and especially internal anatomical specificity i don't think we've really seen an analog before
1: this raises a whole other set of issues though because i mean the way for example nerves work isn't something that would continue to function if they were just made of of steel does he have spinal fluid does you know how how is his, his spinal cord able to some extent to, to translate, you know, its function in his steel form without having any, any of the requisite wiring?
0: Now I'm just thinking way more than I ever intended to about how sex would work with Colossus in his metal form. I bet the internet's thought about that. I bet the internet's thought about that too much.
1: Yeah, I, I feel like the internet has probably thought about that at great and exhaustive length, as I assume have a lot of the other X-Men characters at some point, because you know they talk about that stuff when they're drunk.
0: I feel like great and exhaustive length would actually describe Colossus in his steel form. Oh, God damn it! <laughs> We're a professional podcast.
1: I mean, now you're making the mistake of assuming correlation of penis size to relative height and body size, which isn't actually really a particularly strong statistical correlation at all. Anyway, let's get off Piotr's dick and back to the comic. That's probably for the best. All things considered. And I want to go, I want to really talk about, and actually I kind of just want to read through his conversation with Kurt, because it is so good.
0: You know, I was thinking the same thing. This is some stellar dialogue, and I think this is some of the best writing we've seen with these characters in kind of a while.
1: It's also a pretty good template for how to hold your extremely traumatized friend accountable for the damage he's done while still being a compassionate friend to him. Colossus, for his part, sees
0: none of this coming. Kurt? Kurt, my friend, it is good to see you again. There has been a mistake. I thought I saw my Katya kissing some sickly-looking man in a suit. A man who smokes. No mistake.
1: That was Peter Wisdom, previously of a British intelligence outfit called Black Air. Just tonight, we allowed him to join Excalibur full-time. Just tonight, he and Kitty told us of their feelings for each other.
0: No, no. My Katya loves me. She has waited for me. When I left Muir for Avalon, she kissed me. You are a child. What? Kurt, my friend, surely you must understand. Friend? I feel like I
1: barely know you right now. Your aberrant behavior, of some time back that Moira and the Professor identified as brain damage, I begin to attribute to a basic childishness in you. Perhaps your sojourn in Avalon was not so much a need to convert Magneto's people as an escape from the responsibilities and accountabilities on Earth. How can you say
0: that? I gave up everything to go to Avalon to try and circumvent further violence. How much of this is due to the fact that you lost your family? None of
1: it! I have taken this thing on myself and... You are lying to me, Peter. We joined the X-Men together so many years ago,
0: did you think you could keep the truth from me? To cut in, Colossus didn't really join up with the Acolytes on Avalon to try to fix them, he just joined up because he was bitter and exhausted by the failure of Xavier's philosophies, but we'll go with it for now.
1: Allow me to make a few suppositions. (laughs) You perhaps feel guilt over the way you behaved during your illness. You have a great deal of emotion, all mixed up and locked up and undealt with over the loss of your sister, your entire family. You have staggered through one stressful situation after another, and at the end of it all, you wanted comfort. You wanted your own old life back. Half blind with pain and fear and stress and exhaustion, you made your way here, projecting all of that want onto Kitty.
0: And when I saw Kitty with that man, I... Snapped. Da. I think you are right, my friend. Kitty is next.
1: And for her, it's a lot more personal. Because this is at least nominally about her. This is the person saying, it's because I loved you, who just enacted an atrocity she would never have agreed
0: to. And he starts by trying to do just that.
1: Wait just one minute. This is not a conversation happening here. And I am not your Katya, for God's sake. But... but I care. You care? Right. If you cared, you'd never have left me for someone else. If you cared, you'd let me grow up and be myself. If you cared, you'd never have hurt someone. God, just look at you.
0: I've heard some criticism of this issue. Some people feel that it's too hard on Colossus, that Warren Ellis is basically using Colossus as a psychological or emotional punching bag. On the one hand, it certainly doesn't go easy on him. On the other hand, I really do feel like this is what Colossus's story has been building to, and I feel like Kurt's kind of right. I feel like when it comes down to it, Peter is kind of a child in some ways. He's never let himself grow up. He's just run away from the hard stuff or shut himself off from it.
1: Yeah. I mean, first of all, the idea that this issue is too hard on Colossus because people yell at him after he puts someone in a coma, attacking him out of nowhere for no reason, seems ridiculous to me.
0: Well, I think part of the criticism is that that's what the story has him do, that the story has him go apeshit on Pete like that.
1: You know, I actually really buy it, and I buy it, for the reasons and context that Kurt's describing, because Colossus is, this is this is the complex situation of, of a person who is themselves in horrible pain and in need of support and help, expressing that or acting out, not necessarily voluntarily or entirely consciously, in a way that severely harms other people and a community, than having to deal with that, and that's that's realistic. That is a thing that happens. I mean, it usually has doesn't happen on this scale, because people usually can't turn into organic steel, but it's it's entirely, entirely, entirely plausible and
0: believable. And I appreciate that Peter's actions are not without consequence, but his yeah. friends also don't leave him over it. They They decide to help him. Nightcrawler specifically suggests that instead of telling the X-Men what happened, and, you know, making Peter essentially be condemned by some of his closest friends, they're just going to say that Colossus was worried about his own mental state, and submitted himself for psychiatric evaluation at Muir, along with offering to help the team out. And that seems like, honestly, a pretty decent way of handling it.
1: I have very mixed feelings about that. I think it's an extremely compassionate way of handling it. I think it's one of those things that is, is a judgement call, that even though these are all fictional characters, I don't feel like I can step into. On the other hand, I think given specifically what Colossus did, that it's maybe not a real responsible decision.
0: Oh, in terms of making his victim hang out with him, essentially?
1: No, because this is something that Pete is is fairly sanguine about later, and so presumably has had some say or some conversation in. Um, not that I—I I mean specifically not telling the group he's going back to that he got that violent because there's the st- there there's this and this is this is one of those situations where I don't know that there's a single right answer. This is something that that. I've struggled with with regards to, to complex situations, and I know a lot of other people who have too, um, which is the question of where you draw the line between confidentiality self-determination and community safety. Especially in a situation like this, that on one hand it's pretty easy to assume will be a, will not be a repeat incident, but on the other hand is extreme to a degree that if it is someone's probably going to get killed.
0: That's a really good point. I think part of why I'm okay with it here is that Excalibur is going to have Colossus in its cast for the rest of the book. He's not going back to the X-Men anytime soon. So I think if you were going to, absolutely. Like, Xavier would need to know, Aurora, Logan, Scott would all need to know. Yeah. The fact that he's essentially going to be confined on Muir—I mean, peaceably confined, but still confined for quite a while— I think makes that confidentiality feel a little bit better to me.
1: Yeah, that I think is fine, and that also gives him the time and space to have those conversations himself, which I think is the ideal way for them to happen. Speaking of conversations that should probably happen, um, we're, we've, been, we've spent a lot of time on this issue, and Let's get to 93, because 93 is great, I love 93, and it's got one of the most cathartic confrontations, I'm gonna go ahead and say in all of X-Men ever.
0: Agreed. This issue is called The Spire, it's written by Warren Ellis, penciled by Casey Jones. Oh, just one person, and he's a Ninja Turtles character. Inked by Tom Simmons, colored by Ariane Lenchoek, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft.
1: I like this issue so much, and like what I like I said, it's 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 a confrontation that has been a tremendously long time coming. And honestly, I think this issue specifically is part of why I had no problem accepting the rain we see in new in the new Mutants movie as consistent with her comics characterization.
0: Agreed. But we don't start with Rain, we start with Pete Wisdom, in a wheelchair, and wearing Moira's swim cap as a bald cap, wheeling toward the rest of the team spouting Xavier quotes. Well, actually Patrick Stewart quotes in general because he also says make it so in addition to "To me, My X-Men. Moira will have none of this. I mean, not him stealing her swim cap, and also not him wheeling around as if he wasn't just severely injured.
1: Yeah, um, his status as her patient has certainly done nothing to dull their mutual antagonism. Meanwhile, Megan and Kitty talk through potential new uniforms until Rain distracts them, and Rain has spotted a fire on the mainland. She's got keener vision than, than humans do, and especially in her wolf forms. And she thought she saw an explosion, she saw, saw, saw something starting, but she hasn't been able to pinpoint it.
0: Okay, that's really important, and that's what takes us to the plot. But there was talk of new costumes. We have to at least briefly address this. So Megan's been wearing her green I-don't-know-how-she-can-stay-in-it costume since Excalibur number 14, ages ago, and she actually will get a new costume soon. Weirdly enough, Kitty, Kitty Pride of all people, is talking about a new costume and isn't going to get one for a really long time. Aside from some very, very brief exceptions— the next time she'll have a permanent new costume will be when she's back on the X-Men after a long gap of time and has taped one of Wolverine's discarded claws to her arm for some reason.
1: That's very silly.
0: It totally is.
1: This is, this is Kitty starting to enter the phase where she's feeling kind of burned out and just wears, like, default X-Men gear.
0: Legit, and in fact, the X-Men training uniform is going to be the basis for almost all of her costumes going forward, which I have mixed feelings about.
1: I mean, look, based on what we learned about it in mechanics, it's pretty much the most comfortable garment ever designed.
0: I mean, I would wear one. I also really like the black and yellow combination. I think more people should wear black and yellow, including bees. Oh
1: man, I desperately, desperately want a hoodie version of that costume.
0: Freaking seriously.
1: Well, because, Stephen, they, they, they had the— I'm thinking more of the original five, because I'm thinking of Cyclops' original costume, but
0: they had the hoods. Oh, that's really true, yeah, and you could make it a little more stylish than the head condoms that they were back in the day.
1: Well, yeah, but just having it as a hoodie is, is, is basically just a casual version of the top half of the uniform, and I think that's really cool.
0: I am so into this. So, Megan's been experimenting with her elemental powers. Remember, she's an elemental metamorph. The metamorph part often gets focused on, where she can change into other people or creatures, but the elemental part is a big deal, too. She can see and hear natural forces, whether it's electromagnetic fields or psychic communication. There's a nice little note about how Moira helped Megan train the psychic part by watching old videos of Phoenix. Nice. Well,
1: and that's what's enabled Megan to do what she does here, which is determine that the fire she's seeing isn't a natural fire, it's a fire with some kind of psychic basis or origins.
0: So off they fly, Megan carrying Kitty and Rain across the sea by their belts, which seems very uncomfortable. You know, it's that or the scruffs of their necks. Yeah, good point, and Wolfsbane's not in full wolf form at the moment. I do love this narration here about Megan.
1: Kitty watches Megan out of the corner of her eye. She'd forgotten the best things about Megan. That Megan enjoys her mutant talents more than anyone else she knows.
0: I mean, okay, whether Megan is a mutant is very, very questionable, as we've been over multiple times before, but, yeah. Yeah, well said, comic.
1: Yeah, Megan celebrates and revels in her powers in ways that are pretty revolutionary in this era of X-Men.
0: Yeah, and that's always been the case, I mean, ever since she was able to kind of find her confidence and find herself with Captain Britain well before Excalibur even started.
1: Megan is also arguably the most powerful and definitely the most versatilely powerful member of the team, which is how she is able to use her powers and basically tell the flame to withdraw, to to collapse back in on itself, allowing them to approach and actually find its source. a crying teenage girl.
0: This girl is named Bridget Shane. And when Wolfsbane goes to talk to her, she can't believe that Wolfsbane would voluntarily wear that X symbol, wear a badge identifying her as a mutant, this ultimate shame.
1: That's because Bridget is from the same town where Rain grew up, and after Rain left, Bridget was the kid who caught the attention of Reverend Craig.
0: Reverend Craig was Rain's guardian when she was very young, after her mom died in childbirth. He is a Scots Presbyterian minister. He's freaking terrible. He's extremely bigoted. He's very much a hellfire and damnation person, and he took all of that out on Rain. That's why Rain was just so traumatized and so convinced she was inherently sinful when we first met her in New Mutants.
1: And she's had some time to learn since then, and this time she is gonna stop this and she's gonna stop it now and she goes to the church she busts in in her costume and she confronts reverend craig
0: let's talk a little about that costume part i realize i'm coming back to fashion once again so soon after the last time but here i think it's very significant to the story because let's be real wolf spain's x-factor costume which is what she's still wearing is extremely extremely risque it's and that no, doesn't... no it's
1: no it's not it's cut it's cut like an athletic swimsuit
0: I don't know, the way it's cut so very high and the fact that it's a thong in the back, I mean, a swimsuit I can see, sure, that's fine. That kind of skin-tight superhero costume, sure, that's fine. But the way this has often been drawn, it is a straight-up thong. And that doesn't look too weird when Wolfsbane is in her wolf-hybrid form. It looks a little weird when she's in her human form. And it strikes me that maybe it's deliberate that that's the form she's coming in, in. That kind of defiance, that she's going to tell Craig what's on her mind, the fact that it can also visually include the fact that she is not nearly as ashamed of her body as he made her feel, as this harsh implementation of religion made her feel, that feels significant.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I, I think, I mean, I, God, the back of that costume is terrible, but it's one whose, whose design I will stand by as as basically being more athletic than lingerie. And so it's 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 consistent with her character. It's consistent with the fact that she's a shapeshifter. But yeah, it feels it's it's a costume that she absolutely would not have worn in her New Mutants days. Like there's no question she wouldn't have she wouldn't have considered it. So yeah, I mean the fact that she's doing that, and the fact she, that she is specifically in uniform in an X Men uniform, in a uniform that proudly proclaims her mutancy, is as significant a detail I think.
0: Reverend Craig is predictable. He tells her to be gone, that he basically should have burned her or let the mob burn her all those years ago.
1: The last time we saw Rain confront Re- Reverend Craig, she basically just got out of there fast. Um, this time, she actually stands up to him. And it's a terrific scene.
0: Maybe you should have, Reverend. All those years I spent as your ward, never questioning, getting my head filled with your thoughts... Maybe you should have burned me before I met Moira McTaggart. Because she didn't fill me with thoughts. She showed me how to find information for myself. You offered nothing but indoctrination, but I found education. I know the girl is a mutant, as I am a mutant. And we're nothing to do with the devil.
1: The other thing that she's found out is a lot about Reverend Craig's history. Which she's put together with the stuff that she knows about him. And what she's worked out is that before he was he was the preacher in in Kinross, he was in another town, and that was the town that Rain's mother was from and lived in. And Rain's mom was generally I, I think it was it was danced on tables with her clothes off, is the way Rain described it. And became an important personal project of Reverend Craig's until she until she got pregnant, at which point he freaked out. And She died in childbirth, and he somehow managed to get a hold of her kid and decided to raise this kid, despite claiming not to care about it. And at the same time, his church discreetly removed him and moved him to this this much smaller, more rural location. And now, now there's this second girl who he's doing something similar with and who, like Rain and like Rain's mother, has this bright red hair, and it's very clear that Raines worked out that Reverend Craig is her biological father, and exactly what he's done, and the ways he's abused his position, and that, that what he did to her is so much worse and so much more complicated than just condemning her for being a mutant. And her knowing that, her having that information, and understanding rather than the, the mythology that he had, he had, you know, basically tried to indoctrinate her with growing up, completely shifts their power dynamic. And especially her understanding of their power dynamic.
0: Are you weeping, Reverend Craig? You will tell that poor girl's parents that you made some dreadful mistakes. Your specter has hung over me for years, Reverend Craig. I have dreamt your hatred and your fiery torches for too long. This is my fiery torch, Reverend Craig. I know about you. Fuck yeah. Like you said, so satisfyingly cathartic.
1: And I think even more so than if she had, you know, just come in and murdered him, which would also have been pretty satisfyingly cathartic. Agreed.
0: Because, like she said, this is, this is the true power that she can have over him. This is the way she can at least stop the damage he's been doing to her, and not just her, apparently, for so long. This is how she can shut him down.
1: And this is her winning. This is her not being or living in the role that she was cast in and absolutely and utterly unraveling any authority or any position he had. He he had claim to.
0: It's also just so satisfying after everything wolfsbane has been through to see her get past this. We were talking about how it's nice to see the drama shift away from Captain Britain and Megan's relationship. It's nice to see them able to grow as characters, and it's even nicer seeing Rain get to grow as a character. She's going to have all sorts of additional trauma in the future. Of course she will. It's X Men, but that she's no longer defined by what was such an overwhelming albatross of guilt and shame when she was introduced, is immensely satisfying. So I would say confront
1: this rather than get past this, just because those are two connected but different things, and and confrontation is really what we see happening here.
0: That's a really good point, yeah. I mean, this is her claiming full agency. Yeah. So yeah, three pretty great issues this run is very well loved uh despite some of the uh unfortunate attributes of its writer
1: yeah the fact that the stuff that that rain calls craig out on is specifically about grooming a series of of young women is is definitely not lost on me as a reader at this point
0: agreed totally agreed but, fact is, these are some damn fine issues, and I'm really enjoying Excalibur again, which is something I haven't been able to say for quite a while, so I feel great about that.
1: And they're really, really good character issues. And really good small, tight focus issues, which have has been something that's really been missing from the series for a pretty long time.
0: Indeed.
1: We've covered, you know, a lot of the complicated continuity. I mean, I feel, I feel like the two, the two really big points coming out of here are, are Colossus's anatomy and and Rains' biological parentage. Meanwhile, however, questions abound, and we've got some from you.
0: Richard is good. Asks on Tumblr, how does the prep for the Cold Opens work? Is there a giant cache list of strange X Men occurrences at the ready? Is Jay scrambling looking for topics after an episode is recorded? Are perfectly good cold opens tucked away for a later cold open that more closely mirrors the topic in a grander episode? Inquiring minds must know.
1: So the short answer is yes to all of those. Those are definitely all things that regularly happen in the process of writing these. It's really hard. Um, we've we've done yeah, 320 episodes of those. I've written. I, I don't know the exact count, but definitely more than 300 of the cold opens. And. It's, it's a fairly research-intensive process. Sometimes there's something that I know I want to do and I know I want to cover and go straight to. Um, there, are, there are sometimes things that I'll save for later in continuity, sometimes things that I'll try to get in earlier because they've been addressed later in continuity, but we're this big glaring hole for a long time. I have a couple different <laughs> approaches for figuring out um, what to write about on the weeks I'm stuck. I, I mentioned use... You, uh, using the the Marvel fan wiki before for research, it is an incredibly useful hole to go down to when I'm working on cold opens, because while I'll then go and read the relevant issues, I can follow links between characters, um, and do a lot of kind of wide-view universe hopping through that. I've also got a couple friends who I will go to and basically be like, I don't know what to write about this week, tell me something stupid. Um, which doesn't work as well as it would because they're not actually primarily X-Men people. But I have learned a lot about Cap Wolf.
0: <laughs> Freaking Cap Wolf! I love Cap Wolf.
1: So it's that, and then then usually um I'll write it, and the structures I, I feel the structures and the actual actual writing of them I've I've I could probably do in my sleep at this point because they're they're pretty formulaic, and they've they've also got dialogue beats and voices that I'm very familiar with now. Um, occasionally I will go way outside of the formula and do either a super long or a super short one, um, but I try to keep those relatively rare just so that, that the deviance from the normal structure is part of the joke.
0: Occasionally, when I'm reading comics that I know you haven't, Jay, I'll just have a notes file open as I read, just writing down cold open fodder. I mean, I remember going through all of X-Man not too long ago and all of Cable, just Cable Volume 1, I haven't read, all of it, and like, uh, all of Wolverine volume, I guess technically two, since volume one was the miniseries. Like, and that's really, really fun. It's really fun to not just focus on comics as more of a critic these days rather than just, like, a fan back in the day, but also as somebody who is specifically documenting all the bananas stuff.
1: We were joking for a really long time that there was just gonna be an era where all the cold opens were about Nate Grey. (laughs)
0: I mean, we won't be covering his book very much, so he might as well show up somehow.
1: The thing is, this gets harder as we go, not just because I've written more of them and so there's more stuff that we've already covered, but as we cover more and more on the show, the threshold for what's weird enough to believably elicit a cold open what
0: rises. I know, we used to get off really easy when we could just be like, hey, X-Men's weird, right? And that was the whole joke. And 300-something issues later, I mean, okay, X-Men is clearly weird. That is not news to anybody at this point. Yeah, and it's comics, so it
1: can't just be weird thing happened. It has to be weird thing happened, but way weirder than you'd expect even given the framework. Exactly. It can't all be Onslaught.
0: That's probably for the best.
1: One of the things that's always kind of funny is when when our coverage laps a cold open,
0: oh, right. Like when we actually get to the story that we talked about in a previous cold open,
1: yeah, I was thinking about that because, like we, I, we did onslaught for one of our live shows, and there are specific there are specific continuity points that i I saved for live shows or for specific creators or situations. Um, and that's that's something that i I still still do pretty regularly. Um, but one of them was onslaught. And I guess we're just gonna be straight up covering it now. <laughs>
0: For better or for worse, yup.
1: So Applejacks1552 asks, also on Tumblr, Why do you think Gambit is so often written as passing for human? He has black sclera and red pupils. That seems like it would be a pretty obvious physical trait.
0: That's a really good point, and in fact, at least according to Gambit's solo ongoing, it was a problem for him at first. That's why he was abandoned at birth, because he had freaky eyes. Uh, remember, not all mutations hit at puberty, just most of them. So, I don't know, I mean, maybe people think he's a cosplayer or just a fashion weirdo. I mean, his even his normal outfits can be pretty extra, except for those roof shorts. I feel like those roof shorts were him really taking the day off, because he was so depressed.
1: I feel like roof shorts are going to be a new idiom here.
0: <laughs> they totally should be. How are you? Oh, I don't know, I'm having a real roof shorts day. They're, they're sort of the outdoor equivalent of fuck it sweatpants. Exactly. Uh, more seriously though, I would probably chalk that up to Gambit's mostly official mutant power of hypnotic charm. If he can often subtly convince people to go along with whatever bullshit he wants, I feel like getting them to overlook his eye color, or at least overlook the fact that his eye color is unusual, probably wouldn't be too hard.
1: Yeah, and we are coming into the era when, when costume contact lenses become a fairly ex- an increasingly accessible thing.
0: We are a fully listener-supported podcast, and some levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters or concepts. It's the Angry Clermontian Narrator, with black sclera and red pupils.
1: You thought you had it all figured out, didn't you, Steve Chernikoff? wrapped up neat and tidy, with a neat, tidy little bow on top. At least until Josiah Roberts showed up, with a lighter and an eye for chaos. Turns out neat, tidy little solutions can also be highly flammable, which is really something you should have considered in the first place. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in New Fairfield, Connecticut, in exile from Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com.
0: New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com.
1: Check out explainthexmen.com for visual
0: companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. All of them have Black Sclera and red eyes. I don't think that's true. Maybe they just have hypnotic charm powers. That, I'd believe. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad free, check out the Patreon link at the top of ExplainTheXMen.com. Next week, it's intervention time in the pages of X Force.